Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, everyone. Bible passage will be taken from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. After reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you respond with, thanks be to God. Matthew 5, 1 to 6. Now, when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Yetunde, and good morning, everyone. Again, again, sorry. All right. Um, so we have uh, 2018 is here, and we just completed a short series where we're trying to look into how we do transitions, how we transit. And so we took that from December 31st and the first two weeks of January. We're trying to look, okay. What do we as a church want to think about for the coming year? And we said we want to be a more focused church. And then we said part of that, we're going to look at what Thanksgiving was like. How do we thank God for the past and how do we thank God for the future? So now we're about to start. I'm excited about this year. And some of the sermon series, the various sermon series that we're going to take. Now the very first one. Like sort of we did last year was to start with Jesus. Now, everything is about Jesus, but when I mean starting with Jesus, I mean preaching from the Gospels. And we're going through a series um, that is meant to help us describe what it really looks like to be part of Jesus' kingdom. So we're looking at a passage um, that is very familiar to all of us, Matthew 5 to 7, typically called the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount from now all the way to the end of April. So if, you have wanted to, if you've been intrigued by it or you want to hear it again or you have friends that you think would benefit from it, then please invite them. Let me start by asking this. You know, we all know what stereotypes are, stereotypes. And a lot of countries and people, citizens from different countries have various stereotypes. Right? Stereotypes, the way, oh, when you think about this country, you think this. So let's think of four countries. Let's think of four countries. The very first one, let's think of the British. When you think of the British, what do you think? Uptight? Uptight. Stiff upper lip? English breakfast? breakfast. All right, so when we think of British, what do we, oh, it's not apparent on the screen. Okay. Where we, eh? What do you say? Frank Spencer. Some, some people, if, if, if you are under 30 and you are laughing, you are lying. <laughs> All right, so when we think of the British, 
we think maybe, I like to think, uh, again, I put some stuff on the screen, it's not there. But one of the things you think I, I would say is um, bad, 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 bad t dentition, right? Very brown dentition, it's true, it's true. Sometimes we also think they are very articulate, right? They are very intelligent, right? And we also think if you are into sports, they, they, what? they do what? They lose on penalties. <laughs> At least in football, they lose on penalties. But the French also, when we think of the French, we think of people who are cultured, people who are rude to tourists, lazy. They like to strike all the time, right? They whine. What? Whine. Oh, I thought you meant that they like to whine. Because they do like to whine. I'm, I met one recently on, on the plane. I said, please, can we, can I, he was sitting down somewhere. I had a bigger bag, you know, Niger guy. I said, please, can, we, can I exchange? You can put yours in my smaller place and put mine. Uh, okay, I like to put it. I just don't know why people don't like to obey the rules. So, 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 so. <laughs> so they like wine, but they like to whine. All right? What about Niger people? Oh, I'm bear. Jaye life. Right? Or zoo. Eh? What? Yoruba people who are there. Eh, when we are talking about Nigeria, we're talking about Yoruba people, what's the difference? All the others are minorities. Um, Uche, sorry. Yeah. But you're all here in Lagos. Who, who does Lagos belong to? Let's not even start that one. All right, okay, okay, not just one. Okay, okay, let's take Igbo people, right? 419ers, yes. Um, I am sorry. I am sorry. All the world people are leaving this church now. No, no, no. We think of industrious people, entrepreneurs, right? Hustlers, Biafra, you know? So um, that's Niger. Uh, but, but also, I, I, a lot of people that I've met will say this. Hardworking. Hardworking, like, um, confident. Yeah, overly confident sometimes, you know. Loud. Loud. Okay, so what about... Americans, uh, Americans. The first thing you go somewhere, and do, they always feel that they own the whole, they own the whole world, right? They just go in there, they come, they can come, an American can come in here now and just feel he wants to grab the mic and start singing. They are so confident, they are so arrogant. They said, uh, someone said they are, they are big. Everything is big to them. But also, they have a U.S.-centered view of the world, isn't it? Right. That's why. If you say today, we don't know who the NBA champs are, but, uh, the National Basketball Association in America. So last year, was, last year was the Golden State Warriors. They played this competition in America. Uh, the, only person, the only team that was allowed in that was kind of close was Toronto, the Toronto Raptors. But when they won, the, the, Golden, uh, the Golden State Warriors that won, you know what they are proclaimed as? The world champions. Because if you are the champion in America, you are the champion in the world, right? In fact, they think they are, so, they, they, it's, they are so dominant that they even call themselves God's own country. You see, there's something about the behavior of those who typically will see themselves as really blessed. There is something about the behavior of Americans that I would say, now it's stereotypical, but it's not totally a lie. That confidence, the bravado, in fact, the British had it once when the, a quarter of the world uh, was under the empire. The French also had it, especially in Europe. There is a, in fact, there is still a lingering kind of confidence that both the French and the British have because of those times of the empire. 
They were the dominant kingdom. If you are blessed, you are expected to behave in a certain way. The kingdom is blessed. And so we can start to identify that kingdom by knowing behavior or by being familiar with the uh, behavior of the citizens of that kingdom. You see, eight times in the passage that we now know called the Beatitudes, called the Beatitudes because the Latin translation of blessed is beatus. Eight times you hear the word blessed. Blessed. Blessed are the this. Blessed are the that. Blessed are, blessed are certain kinds of people. Because these people belong to a certain kingdom. They are, set, they are citizens of a particular kingdom. They are blessed. Now, but this kingdom, what would we know about this kingdom? Or how this kingdom is constructed? Well, the only way we'll know about it is, or one of the ways we'll know about it is by knowing about the behavior of those people who are called to be, who are called blessed. So when we want to consider this whole Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be looking at the people of the kingdom. And we're going to look at 14 characteristics that describe the, king, the, the kingdom of God by looking at the people of the kingdom of God. So that's 14 sermons, as I said, from January to April. I want to look at what it means to be part of that kingdom. This week and next week, we're looking at those who, it says they are blessed. So we're looking at what it means to be blessed. Now, if you just go back to chapter 4, uh, verse 23, which precedes this, um, um, passage. You look at what it says in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of what? The kingdom. And then after he proclaimed, what did he do? He was healing every disease, sickness among people. Uh, about, news about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed and he healed them. He proclaimed the kingdom, but he also demonstrated the kingdom. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, but he also demonstrated. Now look at all those things, or demonstrated the power of the kingdom. Look at all of those things that he did. Now if he was an engaging speaker, and he also had uh, miraculous powers, what's going to happen? People would just, they what? The crowd will follow him. So what do you expect? Verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan, they all followed him. So that when you come into chapter 5 that Yetunde read for us, you can understand why the crowds are there. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds. Now, it is not very difficult to draw a crowd. Naturally, spectacle draws a crowd. Spectacle draws a crowd. Something amazing. A magician comes to town, people gather. If you go to the market square, if you see somebody speaking and you kind of like what he's speaking, he has some nice jokes, they go. When you gather comedians, uh, right, that will make you laugh, people go. It's not difficult to draw a crowd per se. Spectacle draws a crowd. But how do you know whether that crowd is a convictional movement? Not just people who are looking for a spectacle. Well, it now starts to, a convictional movement, as opposed to a crowd, is going to be defined by their understanding of the person who has gathered the crowd, or the vision of why that person is gathering the crowd. And that's why even though Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, 
and demonstrated the kingdom and crowds were around him, it did not mean that those people understood or were in the kingdom. For them to really understand the kingdom, what does he have to do? He has to teach them. So the crowds gathered, verse 1, and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And so Jesus has proclaimed, he has he's demonstrated the power, and now he wants to describe by teaching. He wants to describe the kingdom. Now, what we're going to do with, this, with these Beatitudes, we're going to look at it in two messages. But one thing I wanted to look at, if you look at verse, uh, verse 3 and verse 10, notice the promises that are given. One says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the other one, verse 10, the last one says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that is an intentional literary device that Matthew uses. Or Jesus actually speaks. It's called an inclusion. When you bracket certain things by two common elements, that is like here, the kingdom of heaven, you are basically saying what is in the bracket is really describing what is bookending it. So what he's saying is this is what it means to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That which is in the bracket. So that the first and the last beatitudes really matter. So most of our time we'll find, we'll see in this today and, and next week, is going, we're looking at the first and the last ones. And the others will describe that. All right? So what does it mean to be blessed? Well, the one thing he says here is that those who are blessed are poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? We are going to consider that under this heading, contrite citizens in three, uh, three subheadings. One, contrite citizens, so one, their description. Two, their promise. Three, their example. Their description, their promise, and their example. So let's go to the first one. Their description. So as I said, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Blessed are poor in spirit. How many of us have heard that? We know it. What does it mean? Well, some people would say that it means to be materially poor. So you should be poor. Poor in spirit means also poor in, in, material, in, in, your, in body and material or whatever. That's wrong. Some would say, well, no, being poor in spirit is that, you know, some of us are spiritual. You know, we know many things about the spirit. Femi is too intellectual. If you spend time with Femi, Femi is too, intelle is too intellectual. Itunu, on the other hand, is very spiritual. So Femi is poor in spirit, but Itunu is rich in spirit. Now, she would agree with that. <laughs> but I don't think that's what the Bible is saying. And neither is it saying that you are lacking the Holy Spirit. Because if you are lacking the Holy Spirit, guess what? You are not blessed. Being poor in spirit, we can find, actually, we think of certain Old Testament passages. I'm just going to reference to in Isaiah. But if you go to the book of Isaiah, in chapter 57, verse 15, it says, For this is what the high and exalted one says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. To revive the spirit of lowliness, to revive the hearts of the contrite. Or 66, verse 2b, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit. So that is humble, lowly, and contrite in spirit. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. It is, if you want to put it this way, it's an acknowledgement of your spiritual bankruptcy that desperately is in need of God. 
Notice, it's not spiritual bankruptcy. It is an acknowledgement of that spiritual bankruptcy that is desperately in need of God. And you want to ask, really, that's what it means to be blessed in this kingdom? Let me tell you about another kingdom. It's called the kingdom of Lagos. I'll tell you what it means to be blessed. It is 50,000 followers on your Instagram page, your Instagram handle. That's not bad. If you have 50,000 followers. High world Instagram. And then you get, immediately get 286 likes. Or maybe, you know, on a day when you are not so, I just need to get to a banner to go and shop. You enter the G-Wagon. And you're living from your house in Banana Island. And you're about to get married. You're about to get married. And, you know, I would like to, uh, yeah, I would like to get married in Lagos. I was born in Lagos. But there are just so many people here. And there may be so much crowd. And I, I just, I don't, a co-hotel, you know, it's not, it's become too, it's too low, my standard. So I need a destination wedding. Because those who have G-Wagons, 50,000 Instagram followers and uh, whatever and above or live in Banana Island and are about to have destination wedding, obviously covered by Bella Niger, they are blessed in the kingdom that we see. But here it says that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You see, Jesus had said in verse 17 of chapter 4, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Being poor in spirit is actually a lifelong confession of a person's need for God. That I am spiritually impotent without God. If you are actually blessed in this kingdom. In other words, poverty of spirit is the deepest form of repentance, lifelong repentance. Those who are blessed are always, it's not, that, it's not that they repented one time and that's it. They are always, there is a lifelong disposition for repentance. Many of us have heard what repentance is, but do we really know or leave, what it, leave it out? What is this deep repentance? Well, let me put it in this phrase. Deep repentance means, and I will go through it, Mourning and turning from a deep desire. Mourning and turning from a deep desire. Let's take mourning. Look at what verse 4 says. Blessed are those who... Blessed are those who... Uh, now, nah, there's nobody... You see, this is a problem. We, you, we come to, to church with phones as our Bible. Or maybe you've been used to buy, uh, the thing put on the screen. This is why I've said we are never going to put... Bible passages on this screen. When I say, look at verse 4, I expect you to do this. Look at verse 4. When I say, look at verse 4, what do I say? Blessed are those who, you are still waiting for me to do it. Blessed are those who what? Mourn. Mourning what? Is it that we are just meant to be morose? Sing dirges all our lives because this world is so awful. Spend time watching the news because you know the news. Nothing sells like bad news. Just be sad. Funke, how are you today? I'm fine. But that's how you were yesterday. Exactly. I'm fine. Why? Because I'm poor in spirit and I'm meant to mourn. Is this really what it is? That just lifelong mourning, looking morose, looking downcast? I don't think so because there are many other parts in the Bible where it tells us to rejoice. 
So what is this morning about? Well, I will say this. If you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, uh, verse 8 to 10, it says this. Paul says this. Even if I have caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. I am happy not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended. Because godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Let me tell you something about what repentance is. It means to mourn. But mourning what? In reaction to your rebellion against God, your offense against God and against people. Blessed are those who mourn. They mourn because they have seen their or they have acknowledged what that offense means to the one that they have offended. Now, by this, I don't mean two things. There are two ways we can, if let's say you, you sin against someone or you know this is a sin against God, there are two ways we can react. We can either, as Christians, we like to, as Paul shows us here, there is something called worldly, worldly sorrow. It's not godly sorrow. So we either react with worldly sorrow or what we can call godly indifference. You know what godly indifference is? So the first one is worldly sorrow. The fact that somebody is crying doesn't mean that the person is really doing godly repentance, right? The person could be crying because they've been caught. I'm in trouble. But there's also the one who has offended and, well, he's not crying, he's not, he's not doing anything, he's not, you know, but he said, no, I'm really sorrowful. I, I, in fact, I really believe what I've done is bad, so now how can I fix it? That's what I'm saying, I was there, the guy understands and now he's trying to fix it. Now, understand this. The way you repent is directly proportional or your, the way you express your emotional, your emotional reaction is directly proportional to the value you place on the person you have offended. It's directly proportional to the value you place on the person you have offended. Let me give you a, um, a, a, a um, case in point. Let's say I cheat on my wife. Put everything, all right? We've, we've, because I can't use anybody here now, all right? So let me use myself. Let's say I cheat on my wife. You will see who I value more, myself or my wife, by my reaction. So I cheat on my wife. My wife now catches me. And when she catches me, what do I start doing? <laughs> I cry. I cry. And I say something like this. Hey! Because she said, you useless man, I've caught you today. Hey, this thing I've been telling you, blah, blah. And I say, hey, my children are going to find out. The church is going to find out. All of these people are going to leave. Which, who, who wants a pastor that is a cheat preaching to them? Even if they've forgiven him. So I start thinking about my church. I think about my children. I think about my reputation. I think about how I can't go out. Who am I thinking about? Who do I value? Because all the while, there's somebody else there that was an object. You see, she was the sad occasion that revealed who I was, and now everybody knows, and now I'm in trouble. I really just love myself. Another way I could have reacted was, 
I've caught you. She said, I've caught you. You see? This thing I've been talking about, blah, blah. And I'd be like, and, and by the way, sorry, you, in case you think I am exaggerating my previous example, I'm dealing with a case like that now. This other one, she caught me, she confronted me, and then I said something like, it's true, it's right, it's right. You're, you're correct. I hold my hands up. I shouldn't have done that. I'm really, really sorry. I won't do it again. I won't do it again. I'm sorry. Can we pray together? Let's pray. <laughs> Father, Lord, please forgive me for all that I've done. Please have mercy on me. This was against your will. Your, your word tells us we should not commit adultery. I confess everything. I say everything. I'm finished. I ask for your forgiveness. Please have mercy on me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I say, hey, when are you fixing dinner again? <laughs> or even three days after. So you look morose, you look morose. Then after she, she my wife told her now, how could you do this to me? I'd be like, uh-uh now. After three days, and we've prayed, doesn't the Bible call us to forgive? I know a case right now like that. In fact, the person called me because she was bringing it up and up. The guy called me, he now said, this is the kind of honest, I don't know why does she, this thing is paining me. Why is she doing this to me? This thing is paining me. What? He said, I'm sure this is the kind of thing that, cause, that makes people to commit suicide. I want to say, should I bring the rope for you? <laughs> Who does that person value? So whether the sorrow, as you see there, is expressing sorrow, it doesn't immediately mean that the person truly has repented. But at the same time, the fact that the person can articulate it for you and then wants to go to step one, step two, step three, now can we finish, also doesn't mean that the person is repentant. It doesn't mean the person is mourning the way Paul calls godly mourning. Here is even what is worse. The most offended party is not even the woman. We have a case in the Bible, a man after God's own heart. He deceived his military general. He deceived the whole, the rank and file army. He killed a nobleman just because he had slept with the nobleman's wife. And when he was confronted by the prophet, in Psalm 51, he said, against you only have I sinned and committed this evil. In other words, even when you sin, even though you sin against somebody, do you know what? You can't truly really mourn except you recognize who God is. Because at the fundamental heart of sin is rebellion against God. But how do you see this God? If you see this God as, uh -uh, you know, that guy that was in the Old Testament, I, I don't know, it, it seemed like he, he needed anger management classes. That God that was there. Who is angry? But thank God for Jesus. <laughs> Gentle Jesus, what? Me come out. I don't know the kind of God that you worship, but you see, the God may I worship, he's ever ready to forgive. He's so full of mercy. So you see, yes, I, I messed up. Like somebody, another person, I'm sorry that I'm only using adultery in this case, right? Another person that I know told the wife 
he actually, in fact, the, the girlfriend was basically, even though she wasn't living in the house, but she was basically like, it was recognized, this is my girlfriend. And one day she confronted, okay, fine, you don't value me. But what about God? You know what he said? He said, but there's mercy now. In Lagos. It's not, it's not, I'm not telling you something that happened in one village. That's what he said. Full white collar working guy. He said, but there's mercy. Because where sin abounds, it's much more. So we should continue to sin so that we can prove the righteousness and the grace of God. That's what makes God look good. You are deluded. I who dwell in a high and a lofty place. Whenever it says the angels cried, holy, 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 the greatest, the highest of all angels, when they saw this God, what they were actually saying was not holy. Holy is an all-encompassing word. One of the components of what they were saying is worthy, worthy, worthy. What does worthy mean? Worth it, worth it, worth it. Who is God to you? If you see God for who he is, who he truly is, it's not just the fact that he says, don't do this thing. It is, who is this one? If I gave you, if Latunde here, Latunde here, if Latunde came to my house, and Latunde entered the kitchen, and as he was about to pour a, a bottle of Coke into a mug, because Nigerians use mugs, not just for tea and whatever. So he's pouring into a mug, but by mistake, the mug slipped and fell down. Hey! And there are 28 of these mugs. And Latunde called, I am messed up. What happened? Forgive me. Then he now rolls all the way on the floor to that side and comes back here. Forgive me. What have you done? I broke your mug. Which one? One of the 28. Are you okay? <laughs> but if Latunde now took the key to my uh, G Wagon, for those of you who, who, who need to hear it and catch it, receive it. <laughs> he took the key to my G-Wagon without asking me, went out, well, had a nice time in Lekki, was coming back and decided he wanted to test it. Then by mistake, he just bashed it somehow and came back. And said, ah, Femi, hey, thank God that my life has been saved. <laughs> you don't know what can happen today. He said, well, by the way, I have this key. It was your, uh, your G-Wagon. Uh, they are trying to tow it and they are coming. But I quickly have to get to Ianokpaja. I need to go and see. Con what? <laughs> you see, when you don't mourn correctly, you know the price of everything, but you know the value of nothing. We can call God, God, God. But like that person I was talking about, I say, hey, I'm forgiving. Or somebody else that was uh, sleeping with his girlfriend, but... But you know, I know that's bad, but anyway, hey, can you cancel us? What? You know the price of God. It's there. It's, artic it's articulated in the Bible. I can call that. He said I shouldn't do this, but you know there's mercy. You don't know the value of God. If you did, it leads to a self-assessment that causes you to mourn. Blessed are those who what? Mourn. Those are the people that are in that kingdom. True repentance, deep repentance, always has the component of mourning. Now, I'm not saying that you have to, your tears have to be able to fill a four-liter bottle or whatever. I'm not giving that specific. 
I'm not being that specific, but at the same time, I know what it is not. It is not this indifference that is so cerebral and so ready to move on very quickly. And neither is it a kind of manipulative uh, wailing that really is expressing your own regret about what has happened to you. If that is genuine, because that's what we see at the instance, then what happens over time, how we test it, is the turning. Blessed are the meek. Verse 5. What is meekness? Meekness isn't weakness. Neither is meekness uh, somebody who has low self-esteem. In fact, in Numbers 12, verse 3, we are told that Moses was what? The meekest man on the, on the face of the earth. If there's anything you know about Moses that stood before Pharaoh, the greatest king of the whole world at that time, and he said, God said, let my people go. Moses was leading at least a million people. Moses was not suffering from low self-esteem, I can assure you. Neither was Moses weak. Humility does not mean weakness. Actually, humility, the best expression or, or way of, of describing humility, is a focus on other people, the advance of the interest of others above yourself. You are so secure in yourself that you think so much about others, not about you. You don't think, need this self-validation in every single thing. Now, bring that to the issue of repentance. If you are truly meek, and you have mourned, and that mourning is genuine, do you know what that works out in? It works out in restorative action. Not just words, but what? Action. Listen to what happened when people came to meet John the Baptist. Luke chapter 3, verse 8. John the Baptist had said people should repent. He was baptizing them, but he said that repentance that you think is just an instance is not enough because, verse 8, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Then some people asked in verse 10, what should we do? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors became, uh, came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked. Another one, tax collector, what should we do? Don't collect any money more than you are required to. Then another one, the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. True meekness is the fruit of true godly mourning and self-assessment. If you have seen yourself, you see what it is to have offended God and to have offended this person, then you seek restoration. Fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not just that you feel the peace of forgiveness. What are you going to do to ensure that, that, that you want to show God that truly repented, that you want to show that person? And please, when we have offended people, and really deeply offended people, you are not in control of the timing of when that person gets healed. How many times do I have to say I'm sorry? As Phil Collins said, how many? No, sorry. How many times? You see, sometimes, especially with the issue of with, uh, with adultery, why is that person, why is the person finding it hard to, to, to let go? You think you should be happy when the person doesn't let go easily. You know why? Because that shows how much the person loved you. 
It's the value the person had for you. And when you broke that trust, the pain went so deep within. Yeah, but understand this. If I have a normal headache and I take two, uh, whatever, Panadol, I've treated it, isn't it? Most times, if you get good Panadol, not the one that they produce in uh, whatever, real good Panadol, it should go in like maybe 10 minutes. But if I had malaria and I'm, I'm treating, I'm taking anti-malaria and I'm taking Panadol, is it just one dose of, of Panadol that I take? No. The fact that the person hasn't fully come out doesn't mean the person isn't healing. And your restorative action, if it truly is coming from a repentant heart, it has no time limit because it's not about, okay, do this and do this and do this after two weeks and then we see what happens. No, you are, it's a lifelong repentance. Now, I'll tell you this. The morning and the turning can really only be sustained because of a deep desire to do it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What does that mean? Now, righteousness, be careful how you use this word. Sometimes we, we think it only means one thing, especially in the way Paul uses it. That is, righteousness that is given to us as a status, right? The righteousness of God that is revealed so that we are no longer, we don't earn our salvation by works, but by faith in God, and God gives us righteousness. So Paul uses that in a particular context most of the time. But the way Jesus really uses it here, and it's right in the book of Matthew, righteousness is a catch-all phrase, basically, for conformity to God's will. Now, notice he didn't say, blessed are those who, um, blessed are those who um, do what is righteous. He's not talking about the will, per se. Blessed are those who, what? Hunger and thirst. There is a longing to do God's will. You know, when we are driven by our desire and our appetite, how many of us have been hungry before? How many of us are hungry right now? Ah, you see them. Not, I know the people that are not listening. When we are hungry or we desire something, nobody has to convince us, to, you know, if, if Taiwo wants to watch a particular film that she has been waiting for, I don't start trying to convince Tyro. Tyro will have bought the ticket and she'll be, she'll be the one inviting me. Do you hunger and thirst after God's righteousness? Because it's a question of desire. Is our repentance being fueled from the fact that I want to please God? Because look, we will sin. The issue is not whether we sin or not. The issue is after we have sinned. What happens? How are we driven to make restorative action? What kind of mourning did we show? It's only going to be proportional to how much we are hungry and thirsty, how, much, how desirous we are for conformity to God's will. So deep repentance is mourning and turning that is driven from a deep desire. It is not, at the first instance, godly indifference or worldly sorrow. It is godly sorrow which works itself out in restorative action, which we have no set timing on. We leave it to God. We leave it to the other. Now, my second point. Whew. 
If you notice the promise, which is their promise, if you notice the structure of each of these beatitudes, you would have the description of those who are blessed. Blessed are the, and it then says, for, for, for. In other words, they are blessed for they will do something. There is a promise. So a beatitude is really description plus promise. Now, what does it say about those who are poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will, for theirs is the kingdom of God, a kingdom of heaven. Maybe I should say then. What it's describing the citizens of the kingdom, but he also describes other features of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? He's described the citizens of the kingdom, blessed are the people like this. But the promise is also a, description, a further description of the kingdom. Maybe I should quickly say something. Because Yemi set me up for it last week, even though it wasn't meant to be here. It says, for that's the kingdom of heaven. To which some would then say, ah, but what about the kingdom? You could even say there was a Freudian slip there when I said the kingdom of God. What about the kingdom of God? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. What's the difference? The answer is there's no difference, all right? Don't try to find any deep, any kind of, there is no difference. At least in terms of the referent. And you can find, if you compare Matthew 4, 17, where it says, um, uh, the kingdom of, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you go to Mark 1, 15, it is the kingdom of God is at hand. Or you can, this beatitude that we said here, Matthew 5, 3, you can compare the Luke 6, 20 reference. They are the same thing. However, the gospel writers have unique voices. And sometimes they had unique audiences. Matthew was the one, the most Jewish of them all. He was really writing to a primarily... Jewish audience. So that would be people that would know their Old Testament, all right? And Matthew really had at the back of his mind a lot of what's going on in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, you can check 7 verse 13 to 14, there's this son of man that comes to the ancient of this, but I'm not referring to that. He was coming from heaven. Daniel 2.44 says this. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven, God, heaven, will set up a kingdom that will, so if it's the God of heaven that will set up the kingdom, the kingdom is of God and is where? That will never be destroyed, nor will, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it, it will itself endure forever. This is the promised kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. But Matthew, in trying to evoke memories from that Old Testament, he's not talking about... The who, he's not talking about the who from. He's talking more about the where from. The who from is God. But the God is in heaven and the kingdom is from heaven. Do we understand that? So it's nothing very super complicated. So back to the thing. Now notice what the Beatitude does. It says that they will inherit the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they don't have it yet. Well, that's a bit puzzling. Aren't they in the kingdom? Are we in the kingdom or we are not in the kingdom? And the answer is yes, of course. We are in the kingdom, and yet there is still the kingdom to come. It is a reality that started, but a reality that has not been consummated. When Jesus ascended to heaven, the kingdom started because he was enthroned. And yet, all of his enemies have not yet been put under his footstool. Because he says, at the end... He will deliver the kingdom unto the Father. And the end is when his enemies have been put on the footstool. So in other words, the kingdom has been inaugurated. It hasn't been consummated. 
So there is an aspect of the kingdom that we have now. But there is an aspect of the kingdom that is to come. Now, every time we do not repent properly, do you know what we're doing? When you don't repent well, you know what you're saying? You are basically saying that I'm going to do things my way because my kingdom is better than God and I can anticipate a better construction of a kingdom than God can ever promise me. Essentially what you're saying. I'm going to live by the rules of my own kingdom now because, yes, God says there's a way to live in this other kingdom, but of course, God has a, God's kingdom, you know, the one also that is to come, eh, it's okay, but I can think of a better kingdom than that. Really? What could your kingdom have? Essentially, your kingdom, probably you'll be thinking rich. You'll be thinking a lot about yourself. Your king, your, your, you'll be secure. But how many times do we think about other people when we think of our own kingdom? How many times do we think of the whole world when we think of our kingdom? And most especially, you know the biggest problem with your kingdom? You are the king of that kingdom. Really? You know, sometimes we think we would like to have so much power. One of the, the, I always say, one of the worst thoughts that ever comes to my mind, and I tell God, please deliver me from this, is to think that, you know, if I were God, please don't ever think that way. That's what Adam and Eve did. And every time we sin, that's what we're trying to do. The greatest thing about this kingdom is that it's a kingdom of heaven. It's God that is bringing that. And you can see the description of this future kingdom in all the three promises that come to the, to, to, that describe the others. That is, blessed are the meek, right? For theirs is what? For they will inherit the earth. Notice, it's the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdom in heaven. Two different things. So the future of a Christian is not to go to heaven. The reference is not, so, the, the emphasis is not so much on the heaven, it's on the kingdom, but the kingdom is coming from heaven. Because at the end of the day, in Revelation 21, what did John see? What is the hope of a believer? A new heaven and a new what? Earth. The kingdom of heaven is on earth, because the meek shall inherit what? Heaven. Or, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be what? Comforted. Well, he says in that new heaven and that new earth, he will wipe away every word, tears. He says there will be no more mourning, nor pain. And then he also says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. After that after that iPhone that you saved for and saved for and saved for, assuming that you saved well, and that by the time you finish saving, you know, you want to buy iPhone X. But you know how that thing is. You want to buy iPhone X, and as, when you just get to, to that iPhone X, I has come out. But let's assume you got it. You got the latest iPhone when it came out. And as the thing came, you spent your first five hours trying to set up and all that. And now you're no longer just sending text messages. You're sending iMessages. You know that, eh? Your green turns into blue. Yeah, you say, yes, yeah. <laughs> the people who don't understand what I'm saying, God will bless you. <laughs> all right, okay, all right, okay, okay. 
All right, just step up, step up. It's not there. Anyway, so you finally get that. You, the thing gets you for a while, blah, blah. After like three weeks, it's just, it's still what? A phone. It's a phone. We are never, ever truly satisfied because, let me tell you this, as Augustine said, he said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There is nothing in this world that will ever fully satisfy you except God himself. But even now, you don't have the capacity to really get filled by God. Why? Because Paul said, even though we have the first fruit of the Spirit now, we await the adoption of our bodies. And so in Philippians verse three, chapter 3, Paul can say this. There are those who live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is their destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Where is their mind set on? Their mind is set on what? Earthly things. But our citizenship is from where? It's from heaven. And we are eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, that is his kingdom, will transform our lowly bodies and make it like unto his what? glorious body. God recreates this world, but he recreates you first so that you can be fitted for this world. And God is going to be at the center of the kingdom when he, of this new heavens and new earth. Why? Because the thing that is most spectacular about that kingdom is that we'll see God. And he said we'll still have iPhone. Do we understand? The promises that God gives are more than you can ever imagine. And this we get by really experiencing deep repentance. Last point. The example. Now, don't get me wrong. You may miss this. Entering into the kingdom is not by these behaviors. You'll miss the point if you think it's that. Because think about it. How many times are you meek? If I bring, a, if I bring your school photograph, your, you know that your old uh, school photograph that you look at, and you want to show your wife, who is the first person you want to show her? OK, let me put it this other way. Anytime we go take a group photograph, and you see it on Facebook, and some people say, ah, this photo is not, this, 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 this thing is not fine, self. This photograph is not fine. And there are like 50 people there. And say, this photograph is not fine. You don't know what you're saying. You're basically saying, I don't like the way I look in that photograph. Right? If all the 49 are looking bad, you won't even notice. Because, ah, man, look at that pose. Then you now go to the mirror and be like, how can I reproduce this pose? Why do people have eight selfies at a time? Because they're trying to get that pose. They never really got it. We always break many of these things. Because first and foremost, they are not given as commandments. They are actually descriptors. But if you try to make them commandments to live by to enter the kingdom, you will always fail. In fact, the reason why we repent is because we fail. That's not the way to enter. You don't enter by the behavior. Entrance into this kingdom is not by behavior, except that it is. It's not the behavior of the citizens. It's the behavior of the king of that kingdom. What do I mean? You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ showed true poverty in spirit. 
It was on the cross that Jesus Christ mourned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Except that when he mourned, he was not comforted. It was on the cross that Jesus was suffering the sin. He was the, a man of sorrows. And why was he there? For his own sin? No, for the sin of others. How meek. And it was on that cross that Jesus Christ said, I am thirsty. And instead of them to quench his thirst, maybe with water or something, he was giving vinegar. His thirst wasn't quenched. Why did he do that? Because all, there is no one that can enter into that kingdom by their own power. Essentially, Jesus was the ultimate lowly one. The ultimate lowly one. So that when we enter, we can have him as an example to be lowly. Remember that hymn. No friend like him, so high and holy. No, not one. No, not one. And yet no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one. No, not one. If you see the cross of Jesus as something beautiful, you see, because real repentance is not only for valuing God for his greatness. How about valuing God for his love? Where do I see the love of God? We see it with the meek and the lonely Jesus on the cross. And this is why all those who then will be part of that kingdom are called to follow the example of Jesus. How do you enter? You enter by, being, by repenting and looking to Jesus' cross as the grace that actually forgives you. Don't make it a cheap grace. You have to see who you have offended. But after you've seen who you have offended and seen it properly, then don't be proud by saying God's own sacrifice cannot be enough for me. Truly, where sin does abound, grace does much more about. We are called a lifestyle of spiritual poverty, guys. It's a lifestyle of contrition. Far too much now, people want to emphasize faith, understanding, and just apply. And we don't have many broken people. This is the one that I will look to the one who is of a contrite spirit and a, a, broken, a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That is who God is looking for. I pray that he will find us, all of us, as such people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos